Hi, and welcome to a Dad's Path podcast. We're real dads solving everyday problems. Each week we tackle issues that dads everywhere face and deliver actions you can take right away. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode and go to adadspath.com to get our free newsletter exclusively for dads. Our goal is to help you make fatherhood count. Dad on. Hello and welcome to another episode of a Dad's Path podcast. I'm Will Bronstein. Today we're thrilled to be joined by Kevin Spainauer, co-author of Dads, Leaders, and Father Figures, Creating Influence and Legacy for a Lifetime. Kevin's a father of four. He's been an educator for more than 20 years, and he's in his 11th year being a high school principal at a large public school. He's been a basketball coach and was named the district principal of the year a couple years ago. So he's very good at what he does. In this book, Kevin shares insights and practical strategies from preparing for fatherhood all the way to raising independent adults. So we'll be talking today about some of those key themes and takeaways from his book, as well as his own experience as a father and a leader. So sit back, relax, and join us for this engaging conversation with Kevin. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you, Will. Thank you for the opportunity. Look forward to our conversation. Likewise. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting book. There there are four authors and Kevin's, like I said, one of them, and they share, you know, sort of vignettes and and experiences and then tie them into key takeaways uh, that you can use that, that almost any father can use, any parent can use. So we want to just kind of dive in on some of those themes that I thought would be particularly interesting. Um, there's a lot about you know, leadership, about being a father and a leader and what that is, and connecting and how you connect as a leader. So that was one thing I wanted to chat about, you know, from your perspective, Kevin, the the connection between fatherhood, leadership, and connection, you know, versus the sort of strict father you might have in your head who says, do this, do that, how that all comes together. Right. So, and one of the things that I've reminded myself of as I've stepped through this process of writing it, it was really reflective and it was really therapeutic for, for myself because you realize that the number of years that I have spent as an educator in public schools for 24 years and how that has impacted my parenting. When you have been around teenagers for as long as I've been around teenagers, you become more comfortable in leading teenagers at home. And, and so one of the things that I discovered through this process was how much and how influential my professional life impacted the lens in which I saw parenting. And one of the things, Will, that was really neat is, is you, like you said, it is connecting. The opening story about a student that simply did not want connection or came across that way. And, and it's part of our job as educators to be able to cast that line. And, and you might have to cast that line and fish for days on end, but when you plant those seeds, they do come back to you and they do start blossoming. End up, Melina was her name, uh, but Melina, you know, she graduated from my school a year ago and is continuing to connect with me through the years. How that impacts my fathering skills and my parenting skills, I think it's critical that we as as dads understand that we're raising children that are living in a completely different world than what we were raised in. And so I know early on in my fatherhood, I tried to play the comparison game quite a bit. Well, this is what my dad would have done. This is the way I was raised. And the reality is, is that having that vulnerability as a father that maybe my own dad did not show because generationally that was not there. 
but having to step through uh, leading our own children in our household and having our kids understand that dad makes mistakes and being able to admit those mistakes and having that compassion and that vulnerability as a father allowed my children to see that I was very authentic. And I, I think that is one of the words that, you know, resonates as well uh, with this book is that, you know, as a leader and as a father, you, you need to be authentic. Yeah, no, absolutely. You talk about modeling quite a bit in the book as well. And I think modeling uh, that, you know, in good ways and bad ways, like you're saying, you know, like I acted in a way I'm proud of. You should learn from me. And then also, hey, I made a mistake. Dad made a mistake, you know, and I'm sorry. I, I'm going to try to learn from that mistake. Yeah. And, and one of the things that's neat is, you know, my children are ages. My youngest son is 14. Uh, I've got two boys and two girls. My, my oldest daughter is getting ready to be 21 next month. And so one of the things that's been really neat is when you have that level of authenticity and you have that vulnerability as a parent, then as your children age, we can sit around the dinner table and laugh about and have stories and laugh about those times. Do you remember when dad got so mad at Peyton? Remember when he had to come back and apologize because he was wrong? You know, and so kids don't forget. They know, they remember, even when something happened when they were six or seven years old, that 15 or 16 year old remembers those situations. You know, we, we've had many of those conversations within the dynamic of my family. It's really neat to see as they've aged that they're able to recognize those times where mom or dad, and in this situation, a lot of times it was dad, just didn't handle something exactly the right way. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. What about, you know, while we're going down this path of things that, you know, us dads can do better, one thing you talk about a little bit is decision fatigue and, you know, when you need to take timeouts for yourself. How do you balance that and how do you kind of communicate those times, communicate with your partner, with your kids? Uh, how do you know when, when it's time? I feel like time a lot of the times, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Well, and especially when the kids are younger, you really feel that when they're growing those toddler years and and they can be very trying and you've got a lot going on because typically in the age that you are as a parent, typically during those years, you're in the midst of really trying to also grow your career and figure your career out. I will say that I didn't get that right all the time. And that's one of the reasons why we, we tried, I tried to talk about it in the book quite a bit because finding that balance, that work-life balance and that dad life balance was not always, I didn't always get that right. One of the things that I, I believe is important is listening to your kids. When you have those conversations, when you're going in for those times when you do have moments where you can really spend quality time with them, they'll give you some signals or they'll let you know. When they're younger, especially, they'll let you know, Dad, I hadn't seen you in a while. You haven't tucked me in in a while. And so some of those things really cut right straight to the heart as a parent, you know, when your kids are very honest and open with you, but you have to be available. You know, so much of what we do in, in parenting is making ourselves available to hear those moments in time, to experience those with your kids. And again, in my, in my experience, it doesn't have to be hours of time. It can be a solid 15 minutes. You know, we used to, after dinners, and I would be tired from a ball practice when I was coaching, my wife is working, and, and we're balancing, but we would go out after dinner and play a kickball game, you know, in the backyard. 
all four kids out there with dad pitching, and the kickball game would probably last all of about 10 minutes, honestly. But to them, it was memorable. Those things that they remember when you set some of those expectations of really having quality time for your kids, the memory that they cast upon that, they look back on that with a sense of, well, that's the way we used to always do it. I can tell my 18-year-old, well, no, we really only did that like once a week. But the 18-year-old thinks that we play kickball after every meal. So it's really about finding those golden times where you can be really present with your children, Will, and you can provide them your full attention. There's another chapter in there that talks about the phones and technology and how we're going to model as parents how we interact with our phones as adults so that they see that mom or dad's not answering the phone or answering a text message while we're sitting at the dinner table together as a family. Those things are important. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, uh, and those are and those the roles, roles you know, when you, you know, think, when you about, think about even, even you know, a stats you know, with young, young kids, kids a lot earlier, earlier than, we than we want to. to. There's you know, always going to be that one kid at school whose parents get them that cell phone early and it's here to get earlier and earlier. You know, you'll push it off a little, but at some point, peer pressure, I think, will just be impractical to keep fighting in a lot of cases. But establishing some parameters, right? Because I think a lot of times parents are taking the path of least resistance. They know that when they're out to dinner, they can put an iPad in a four-year-old or a five-year-old's hand, and that will appease, much like a pacifier would, appease that child during the dinner and get them, get the parents and family through that dinner without incident, as opposed to maybe taking the harder route, which is establishing the norms of how they're going to behave at a dinner table when they're out to eat somewhere. That might mean that there's tears for a dinner or two, that there's, you know, there are a lot of people are looking your way. But as a parent, I think, you know, there's value in establishing those norms and those, those kind of parameters and guidelines for how we're going to use that technology. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it has to start at a, you know, again, early for us early when, when we start modeling. And as we create rules that we want to follow for the family, you know, one, one area you talked about were non-negotiables. I'd love you to, to kind of define what non-negotiables are. And I think you recommended having three to five of them. So it's not like, you know, the 10 commandments or whatever this is, you know, needs to be. So I'd love to hear in your words, what they are and how you'd recommend that we could utilize them as new dads. Yeah, so I, I think the, the concept of non-negotiables is trying to keep it simple so that your kids, as they're you know stepping through the toddler years and, and pre-adolescence and whatnot, it's something that can be fresh to their, their mindset. And it changes. Like for us, they do kind of morph from age level and child development level. But early on for us, a lot of it was how we speak to each other. And that's what I referred to in the book as one of the, the non-negotiables of using the words shut up. And again, I think it's important that parents find what their value systems and what works for them and what they'll be able to enforce and be consistent with. For us, as, as my wife and I looked at how we wanted to structure our family, for whatever reason, the words shut up portray in, in our lens as mom and dad, they portrayed a very disrespectful you're not honoring one another. And so we had to model that as parents. Uh, my children have never heard me tell my wife to shut up. Maybe hold on, let me talk for a second <laughs> uh, to my wife, but never a shut up. 
having just the way we were going to talk to one another as as siblings, how we are going to address one another, how a father is going to address their child. I'm not ever going to say to my six-year-old, shut up. Therefore, they're not ever going to say that to their sibling. And having that more about establishing those those parameters again of what's acceptable and then talking with your kids. And, and you've said it multiple times, starting at an earlier age, I think sometimes we as fathers and as parents maybe don't give our, our young children enough credit that they can understand their capacity to understand what is acceptable and why. But, you know, we set our children down early and explained this is the reason. When you speak to your brother or your sister and you're using shut up, you're disrespecting them. You're not honoring them. And now we are a family of faith. And so we do tie in a little bit of those biblical principles uh, when it talks about honoring your, your father and your mother. And so we talked about what the definition of honor would be. You know, that is just one example of a non-negotiable uh, as, as far as the language that you, you use in your household. We also had a non-negotiable of, you know, how they would speak to their parent. There wasn't an option to disrespect, to be defiant towards the mom. And I think in a healthy two-parent family, and not everybody has that luxury, but if you do have that luxury, to be able to have each other's back. So that's, that happened. We tried to do that a lot. We didn't always get it right, but we tried to do it a lot where if I heard my children talking to their mother in a certain way, a certain tone of voice, a certain language that they were using towards their mother, then I would step in. So the kids were able to see quickly that mom and dad were on the same page and that dad was going to step in and explain that that was not acceptable. The tone of your voice and the tone of how they're speaking to one another and to their parents, I think is important. That was a non-negotiable. Uh, and then the specific shut up was a non-negotiable. Now, as they aged, we got new non-negotiables for our teenage sons right now. And some of those non-negotiables are where they're at on a Friday or Saturday night, what time they're supposed to be home. If they're going to go anywhere, then they have to notify mom and dad. You know, they have to communicate with us. Some of those non-negotiables change as the age changes. That's awesome. Great examples. Do you write those down somewhere or how do you... Do you look at them on a regular basis or is it more just, hey, we'll talk every so often? When they were younger, yes. We did have a little note card that was on the mirror. We would put it on the bathroom mirror that, you know, had the family non-negotiables. We also had, some parents might think this is crazy, but we also had four reasons to cry that we used to talk about with our children. They just got so emotional and bent out of frame like children do. We would ask them, what's the reason for you to be this upset? Why, why are these tears happening? Give me the reason why. And so those four reasons, Will, were fear. So like if you're scared, you're lost in the grocery store, we want you to cry. If you're scared, it's okay to cry. Obviously, if you're hurt, it's all right to cry. If, you're, if you have pain, we want you to cry. If you are uh, experiencing sadness, we talked about that with our kids. If, if your kitty cat is lost or dies and you're really sad, that's completely fine. And then the last one was if you're overjoyed, if you're emotional because you're so happy. And so we had those also on a note card. Here's the four reasons to cry in the Spain Hour household. 
you know, that might not have checked all the boxes for being the mom and dad of the year award. We might not have won all those awards, but, you know, some people might contest that uh, rationale, but it worked for us. Our kids were able to grasp that. And so when you'd have tears in the house, we'd say, are you tell me why you're crying? Tears in the restaurant, like we talked about earlier. Tell me why you're crying. You're frustrated because this, that, or the other. And it's amazing that a three-year-old, two-year-old can kind of grasp those concepts. But as they've aged, we've not done the best in uh, continuing to write those down. I must, I must admit, <laughs> I'm sure it gets harder. And but I do like, I, I actually really like those reasons to cry. And of course, as you're saying, it it has to work for your own family. And it sounds like it did work for for you guys. But the overall message is: don't be afraid of your emotions. Don't repress your emotions. Embrace them and try and understand them. It's normal to have a lot of emotions, including sadness. We don't need to hide it. I think that's a really important lesson to teach we, with a couple of things that you've, you've said, you know, at a young age, at a younger age, and you think you want to teach it. And I think that's right. If you want to have smart kids who understand advanced concepts, then you have to teach them advanced concepts before they can understand them, you know, and then, the, and then they'll understand them. Right. And to be able to think rationally and critically, uh, I think that's developed early. And that's something that we see, you know, in, in the profession that I am in education, so many children now are struggling with various depressions, anxieties, and fears, warranted or unwarranted. If it's real to that student, if it's real to that child, then it's real. Figuring out how to overcome and deal with some of those things, I really believe is something that is instilled during those really young years uh, to be able to think rationally and critically on how to deal with some of those emotions makes a lot of sense. And uh, another just <laughs> vignette from the book, I, I think it was from you, but just uh, I thought was fascinating was someone was offering their kids $2,000 cash not to get any tattoos or piercings or something. Was that you or can you talk about that? That was, uh, that was my buddy, Andrew, one of the co-authors, uh, Andrew Murata, and he's got three children. He and his wife both have tattoos that they got in their adult life. The premise of what he's talking about is he was not wanting them to make a rash decision as a child, you know, as a teenager, when we know that the brain is not fully formed. He, he was wanting to offer them here. You know, you can wait till I think he was saying wait till 21, maybe or wait to 18. I'm not exactly sure. I can't remember the age, but he was saying that he would give them $2,000 if they would wait. So then at that point, he knows that if they're making that decision past that age, then it's a decision that they can live with and they're not going to regret. You know, I think that's really kind of talking about as a parent, trying to put your kids in a position where they're going to make healthy decisions for them that they're not going to regret and, and trying to maybe entice them with a little carrot and stick, right? But with it, with putting that carrot of money out there to maybe do that. Yeah, no, I think that's a great, <laughs> you know, creative idea. Another idea or sort of vignette I like from the book, Forcing the Awkward with a trip for the high school musical. I'd love you to tell the story real quick, but then also, you know, in your mind, the importance of forcing the awkward and kind of what that overcoming the fear, what that means to you and as, as a dad and, and how you do that. One of the things we've talked about modeling already, Will, but one of the things as a parent, it's important to try to put your kids in positions where they have to stretch their comfort zone. And again, I know we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, what it means to parent young children, but as children age, 
and they're in those pre-adolescent to adolescent years, it's very easy for kids to become kind of tunnel visioned on who they are and what they can do. And so my wife and I really realized this when we asked our daughter to order takeout. And she was, I think, 15 at the time. And we were like, hey, why don't you order us some pizza? It was so awkward for her. She did not want to call the pizza delivery place to order pizza. And we were like, what in the world? What? Where are we at as parents when our 15-year-old daughter can't pick up the phone and order takeout, you know? And so the story about the high school musical, we, we did a trip across country, actually flew into Denver and then uh, did an RV trip one summer and spent about two and a half, three weeks going to national parks and whatnot. And on the trip from Yellowstone down towards uh, southern Utah with Zion and Bryce, we went right through, took us right through Salt Lake City. Our kids grew up on High School Musical, the movie. My wife and I surprised our four children and rolled up to the high school that they filmed, that they used to film the, the movie. We spent a solid three hours walking around. It was, it was a great East High in Salt Lake City. It, it was a great experience. They have a little tour flyer that will show you where to, where to go around the school to reenact the scenes or whatnot. But there were moments during that time where had dad not forced the awkward, our experience would have been a lot different. And so we saw a crack in the door to the leads into the stage, whereas like the final scene, the culmination scene of the movie was, you know, on this stage. You know, my children were scared to death, you know, that you're not supposed to go in there, dad. The door's locked. Well, the door had a little crack in it. And so dad just opened the door. What we ended up with was 15 minutes of golden time, time that they still talk about and cherish. From there, we were on our way out and I came across a, a gentleman. They were actually shooting uh, and filming the TV series that were on, with on D Disney Plus or whatnot. They were doing that during the day that we were there, and I ended up talking to a guy. And it's one of those situations where, you know, dad goes up and starts talking to a complete stranger. And not only my four children, but also my wife are like, oh, no, what's he going to say? What's what's dad going to do? But I was just using it as an opportunity to maybe give my kids another experience. So to force them into a situation, force us into a situation as a family where see how dad just approached this stranger, started talking to him. This guy, Gus was his name, and I think I mentioned him in the book, but this guy ends up taking us kind of behind the scenes. We end up down into the gym, another location that was very critical in the movie that my kids wanted to see, but was off limits that day. And so he ended up taking us into there and had my children not seen me kind of force the awkward, that awkwardness of walking up to a stranger and talking to them, then my kids wouldn't have had that memory and that experience. You know, that's one of the things I think as a dad, we can model and, and put into play where our kids see us taking a risk, doing something maybe outside of who we are as people, maybe doesn't fit my personality and it doesn't just to walk up to a complete stranger. But I knew that we only had one shot. You know, we, we weren't going back to this school. So uh, I wanted to see if my children had the most quality experience they could have. That's what the Force the Awkward's about. I like that a lot. And the uh, example you gave with your daughter is also a great one where, hey, this is an awkward situation. You know, I think as a, as a father, as a leader, you know, our job is to show empathy, which I'm sure you did. So, that, gosh, you know, I understand this feels awkward and uncomfortable, but we need to force it. We need to, you know, this is how you're going to grow and, and become a better person and become the, the full person that you need to be. 
So we realized after that experience with our oldest daughter, 15, okay, the simple thing like takeout, then we started wondering, okay, have they ever pumped gas before? You know, there's so many things that we as parents, we just do. And we do it. Our kids are getting older. They're getting to an age where my 13, 14-year-old child needs to know how to start pumping gas. In the last couple of years, we've had that experience where we've been more intentional with some of those things that, you know, you wouldn't really think about being awkward to a child. But if they've never pumped that gas before, the last time, the first time they do it doesn't need to be the first time they're filling their own tank up. That's a uh, funny example. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of those as our kids get older that we just don't think of until we experience it. Another topic I really enjoyed from the book that I think is challenging for parents or for myself, I I would say at least, is meeting children where they are, you know, not understanding they're their own people. And no matter, you know, we, there's so much we can do and we are going to do all we can do, but they're not us. They're not carbon copies of us. But I'd love to hear your advice having been through it, you know, kind of your experience with that sort of idea of meeting children where they are, where you've had challenges and where you've seen some fun successes maybe. Yeah. So And actually, I talk a little bit about this in the story about my youngest son, Will, and recognizing your child's spirit. And he was two years old. He was sitting at a kitchen table. He had just gotten a haircut, like his first haircut from a family friend of ours. And I'm asking my young, my son, who cut your hair? And he wouldn't tell. Her name was Sonia. I knew who cut her hair, but I just wanted him to tell me. And so the the stubborn young dad in me I'm getting angry at my son because he won't tell me who cut his hair that day. And he knows I'm not proud of this, but we made him sit in his high chair until he was going to tell me. He went the entire night, Will, and did not tell me. My wife, who had my back, takes him from the dinner table straight to bed. The next morning we come down, I'm getting ready to leave for work. I'm hugging my wife, saying my goodbyes. Will's at this time the youngest. He's back in the high chair having his breakfast. And I said, all right, buddy, I love you. And he looked at me, Will, and he went, Sonia. That's all he said. He didn't want to tell me from the night before. He knew exactly what he was going to tell me that morning. He remembered it. To go back to what you're asking me, that was, to me as a father, his spirit. I got to see who he was as a person. And who he was as a person, our oldest, our daughter, our oldest child, would have never done something like that. She was so compliant. She wanted to please. That firstborn wants to please. I don't know if you've ever read the book, The Birth Order, but there is a a great book about the birth order that is fabulous and fits our family to a T. But being able to recognize as a parent, if you do have, if you're blessed and you do have multiple children, to be able to recognize how they are so uniquely different. And having the awareness is the first thing. Too many times I think, and I I was guilty of this uh, as a a parent, young parent, I tried to put them in the box of who I thought our kids are supposed to be, as opposed to allowing their box to be different. As I I saw the dynamics of our family changing and our kids were growing and, and aging, you see their personalities more then you have to, as a parent, be aware of it. I think that's priority number one. And when you have that awareness, you get to then come up with intentionally how you can spend quality time with each one. Like you said, you have a boy and a girl. You're going to spend a lot of time with them together, but they need their dad with some one-on-one time as well. And so finding that one-on-one moments where you can be with your daughter in a unique way 
that is not the same way you would be when both of them are together. And so being intentional with that and finding those moments where you can spend that time, that fills their bucket, so to speak, and gives them what they need. Yeah, I think that's right on. And I mean, earlier in the conversation, we were talking about the importance of just being present. And that's how you can create these memories, you know, as a family or, or with your kids. And so I'd be curious hearing sort of your take on one-on-one time, what you found that worked that was special for your family that uh, that you did or wish you did uh, or did more of or anything along those lines. As a parent, I think you always have hindsight and you'll go, there's things that I could have or should have done better. But I think it's important as as a parent, as a father, you have to also forgive yourself. Sometimes we try to be so many things to so many people that if we're not careful, then we're not feeding ourselves and we're holding a guilt for what we didn't do. You know, that's part of what we tried to stay with this book. We tried to stay very positive and have the stories have a very positive outcome most of the time, because I do believe that one of the things that that young parents and even older parents that sometimes we get uh, in a trap of seeing all those things that we're not doing. But, you know, I, I think one of the things that worked for me specifically was, you know, we are a sports family. We do a lot of things uh, with sports. I was able to spend some quality time with my children as they were growing up individually with sports, you know, just going out and throwing baseball with my son and it'd just be he and I. Uh, My youngest son plays baseball. My other son never played one inning. We didn't force that on them. You know, he had no interest. My youngest one did. My second child plays volleyball. Her older sister has never played one set of volleyball. So being able to spend time in what their unique hobbies and their unique interests are was a good way for me to spend some quality time with them in what they enjoy doing. Yeah, it's so simple, but not so easy to do. And a lot of people just don't do it. Yeah, it's hard. Like I said, we didn't always get it right, Will. There's times where my wife and I have reflected on, particularly with our sons, reflected on their experience and wondered, did our sons sacrifice a lot of their experiences when they were seven, eight, nine years old because we were caught up potentially with that 13, 14-year-old daughters that were we were going through things for the very first time with them? Those are things that when you do have multiple in a larger family, you have to really kind of consider, and you're not always going to get it right. But forgive yourself as a dad, forgive yourself as a parent, and understand that although that number three and number four children in the lineup of birth order, their journey and their path is going to be a lot different. It's going to be blessed in a different way. They're going to be blessed and they're going to have their personality and their journey is going to be shaped and molded because they were where they were in the birth order, because they were in a scenario where they got two loving sisters ahead of them that were good examples of what it means to be a good female. Our sons are realizing that now, you know, they're, they have that example. And so hopefully what we're hoping now as aging parents is that our sons will look for their partner and they will, they will look for some of those quality traits. There's those character traits that they not only see in their mother, but that they also see in their sisters as somebody that can be a life partner for them one day. Yeah, no, that's a uh, beautiful aspect of having, you know, a large family. Absolutely. And it's interesting how siblings affect one another and affect the family and the dynamic. My last question, Kevin, before I let you go is, you know, we have a lot of new dads, dads who are expecting a kid or who are kind of in the throes of it, you know, like a three-year-old at home or two-year-old at home. What advice would you give them, you know? 
what would you say to us dads out there who are doing the best we can do? I, I have this in the book. This is a chapter in the book. It's called uh, Take a Walk with a Turtle. But I would slow down. Uh, and again, I just mentioned about, you know, forgiving yourself as a parent. As parents, you want to do and you want to provide your kids the best possible journey, the best possible path. You want to a lot of times remove obstacles from that path. But I, I would encourage young young dads to to slow down, enjoy that journey, and, and don't feel like you have to be perfect. And your kids will be blessed by having some obstacles in their path. You don't have to remove every single one. And have that inner peace about knowing that you're doing the best you can do with the hand that you're being dealt. That doesn't mean that you don't prepare yourself. That doesn't mean that you don't listen to podcasts like this or read books or or try to you know educate yourself on what it means to be a very intentional parent. But you also have to cut yourself some slack and, and know that you're going to do the best you can do, and and you're going you're going to be the best father that child can ever have because you're the only father that child's got. No, that's right. That's great advice. Well, thank you, Kevin. There's a lot of great advice and just down to earth thoughts that I think will be helpful to me and to a lot of our um, listeners. So I appreciate you joining us. And again, the book is Dads, Leaders, and Father Figures, Creating Influence and Legacy for a Lifetime. Thanks again for joining us, Kevin. Yeah. Thank you, Will. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, You can find that book on Amazon. We've got the Audible version coming out soon. And if anyone, if I can help in any way, you know, I'm doing this really because I want to try to support fathers much the same way you are. And so uh, I can be found uh, on Twitter at Kevin Spainauer. If I can help and influence you in any way, I would love to do that. Feel free to reach out. And Will, thank you for what you're doing for dads across the country. Fantastic. Thank you, Kevin. This is great. Have a good one. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you haven't joined us yet, go to adadspath.com to get our free newsletter exclusively for dads. And do you know a friend who might like this podcast? Send it on. We want to help as many dads as possible make fatherhood count. Dad on. Dad on.